listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, dear friends, you can take out your Bibles. And would you open up to the book of Psalms? Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 87. So if you're visiting this morning, we've been working through a short series on life in the church. And, and what we've been doing in this series is just taking up doctrines of, of the church and picking them up and just looking at them afresh. And so we started this series by looking at baptism. What is baptism? How should this function in the Christian life? And that's in part why we're having a baptismal service today. Then we looked at church membership. What does it mean to belong to the body of Christ? Then we looked at church eldership. How is the church led and, and guided? We looked at church discipline last week. And we're going to conclude our series on life in the church today by looking at the matter of, of corporate worship. Corporate worship. So let's listen to God's word together. Psalm 87. The psalmist says, On the holy mount stands the, the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Oh God, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. So I'm going to start off by peppering you with a bunch of uh, truths and corresponding questions. So let's start. God is glorious. How can we most glorify God together? God has promised his near presence to his people. The wonder of the new covenant is that God dwells among us. How can we experience the most of God's near presence? God delights in revealing his character to us. He desires to show us his kindness, his love, his, his compassion, his, his righteousness, his power. How can we see God most clearly revealed? Our God has promised to sustain us with spiritual food, making us strong for the day of battle. How can we get the maximum spiritual benefits from the Lord? God has called us to love each other. He has called us to, to provoke each other to good works. How can we do the most good to our fellow believers? Sadly, sin is always lurking at our door, seeking to pounce upon us. Our, our hearts often grow cold. We often wander away from God. How can we fight against the sinful inclinations of our hearts best? How can we put to, to death the, the, the desires of our wayward hearts best? Our God is a great worker of miracles. Mighty deeds are recorded, of, are recorded of him in the past, and he has not stopped working these deeds even in the present. Where can we experience the Lord doing his mightiest works now? 
Our God holds out great rewards for those who follow him. The scriptures promise them. New creation is coming. Redemption is coming for everything. Heaven. Where do we get closest to these rewards and realities in our present day? Where do we get to taste heaven right here, right now? That's a lot of questions to think about. They might make your head swirl a bit. But there's something in common with all of these. They all get to the heart of Christianity. Even more, all of these questions are immensely practical for our lives in Christ. And so I ask you, do you have, a question, do you have an answer to these questions? Do you have anything to say to these questions? Well, I've come this morning with an answer, and the answer might surprise you a bit. The answer is this, corporate worship. Corporate worship. How can we most glorify God together? We most glorify God together by coming together corporately as one people, lifting up our praises in prayers to our one God. How can we experience the most of God's near presence? We experience the most of God's near presence by coming together corporately, banking upon the promise of Jesus. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How can we see God most clearly revealed? We see God most clearly revealed by gathering with fellow worshipers who have set their hearts like David's. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. How can we get maximum spiritual benefits from the Lord? By going to the place where God has promised to meet us, the place where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered and the saints fellowship and gather. How can we do the most good to our fellow believers? By coming together and doing what Paul commands us to do in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Oh, how can we fight off sin? How can we find relief from those, those sinful passions reigning in our hearts often? Psalm 72 says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my, my steps had nearly slipped until I went into the sanctuary of God. Where can we experience the Lord doing his mightiest works on earth? Believer, God does his mightiest works on earth in corporate worship. When the word is preached, God uses his word and he changes people. He brings dead people to life. He takes out hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of love. God does his greatest wonders in corporate worship. Where do we taste heaven on this side of glory? You want to know what heaven is going to be like? Come to corporate worship because here Christ Jesus himself dwells with us. He is walking in our midst. Christ reigns here, giving us his gifts, meeting our needs right here, right now. Corporate worship is glorious and good. And the sermon is going to be structured around a very simple proposition. I'm going to try to prove this proposition from the scriptures. 
and that I'm going to attempt to apply this proposition to our lives right now. So my proposition is this. Corporate worship is the most essential component of your discipleship in Christ. Corporate worship is the most essential component of your discipleship in Christ. I just want to focus in on one word in that proposition. That's essential. And this is a word that should make better sense to us because of the pandemic. What does essential mean? Well, it communicates value. When something is essential, it's what? It's absolutely necessary for you. You can't live without it. You can't go without something that is essential for you. For example, while getting a haircut is good, no one would say that it is absolutely essential for your life. And many of us have discovered this in the pandemic. We've moved on with our lives, even though our hair wasn't cut. Haircuts aren't essential. You might look like a caveman or a cavewoman, but they're not essential for your life. Well, on the other hand, getting groceries is essential for you. Your life will not go on very long if you don't get groceries. You're going to die. You need to eat. And so what I'm arguing for is this. While there are many disciplines in the Christian life, so we can think of some of them, Bible reading, private prayer, family worship, meditation, memorization, Christian fellowship, friendship. There is a hierarchy of importance among these disciplines. Simply put, some of these disciplines are more fundamental, more essential to your life in Jesus than others. And the discipline at the top of the list, most essential for your life in Jesus, is corporate worship. And so, brothers and sisters, if this proposition is true, it is going to shape us and change us. It's going to change our spirituality. It's going to change what we, we pray about and what we pray for. It's going to change the way we, we view Sundays. It's going to change the way we arrange our, our schedules and what we fit into them and what we don't fit into them. So corporate worship is the most essential component of our discipleship in Jesus. And so this needs some support from the scriptures before we do anything else. Did the scriptures say this? And so our work in the Bible is going to be a bit unique this morning. What I'm going to do is draw your attention to a theme in the Psalms. And once we establish this theme in the Psalms, we're going to take a step back. And we're going to ask a simple question. How do I do that? How do I do that? And so we began this morning by reading Psalm 87, and that's where we'll start discovering this theme. So if you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 87, verse 2. The psalmist says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And immediately, this should catch our attention. We're being told that the God of the universe, our Creator God, loves something. We want to know what He loves. In fact, this verse does something more than that. It tells us how our God loves. Our God does not love and value everything indiscriminately. God's love is not like a big blanket that just covers everything equally. Rather, the Lord loves some things more than other things. Some things are closer to our Lord's heart than other things. And in this case, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Interesting. And the psalmist wants us to picture a scale in our minds. On the one side of the scale are the gates of Zion. So think here of the entrances that you would have gotten into the city of Jerusalem. Doorways, passageways, walkways. So that's on the one side of the scale. Then on the other side of the scale, the Lord wants us to, to think of 
all the dwelling places of Jacob. All the homes, all the dwelling places where people would live in Israel. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of homes. Big ones, small ones, expensive ones, shabby ones. And to the Lord, the psalmist wants us to understand the gates of Zion, the entry points of just getting into the city of Jerusalem are greater than all of the dwelling places of Jacob put together. Interesting. Now what's interesting is that this text isn't standalone in the Psalms. We find other Psalms speaking with similar language about the glory, the wonder of Jerusalem. For example, listen to Psalm 48 verses 12 through 13. The psalmist says, commanding the people of God who were worshiping, walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. The psalmist wants the people of God just to to wander around Jerusalem slowly, just taking in the glory of the city. And then there's Psalm 50 verse 2, which is so striking. The psalmist says, Zion, the perfection of beauty. Zion, the perfection of beauty. Zion sets the standard for beauty. It is the pinnacle. It is at the top of the scale. You have to compare everything else to Zion. And so we listen to Psalm 87, Psalm 48, Psalm 50, and we say, well, that's high praise for a city. And we're we're getting curious. Well, what makes Jerusalem so lovely that the Lord loves it and that the people of God love it as well? Well, we need to keep listening to the Psalms. Let's start with Psalm 122. The psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as he decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And then there's Psalm 95. That was our call to worship this morning. The psalmist says, commanding the people of God, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So these psalms are giving us some clarity, don't they? What's so important about Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was the worship center for Israel. God commanded his people, and it didn't matter where they lived. If they lived in the north or the south or the east or the west, they needed to travel there at various points in the year to come and worship him. It was where the people would come to to sing and to pray, to offer sacrifices, to lift up and glorify the name of God publicly and corporately. Jerusalem is lovely. Why? Because it was the place where God was worshipped by the people of God together publicly. But there's more to Jerusalem than just that. What makes Jerusalem so lovely is not just what the people of God do there. They sing, they pray, they offer sacrifices, they, they glorify him. But what makes Jerusalem even more lovely is that God is there. Psalm 132 says this about Jerusalem. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. 
Psalm 76 verse 2 says, His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is Zion. We're starting to see clearly now the loveliness of Jerusalem, the worth of Jerusalem is due to this fact. God is there. He manifests his presence there. And it's for this reason that we get songs like Psalm 84 and Psalm 63 because the people of God are starting to put it all together. God commands the people to go and worship there. And they know that God is to be found there. And so the people of God who are spiritually alive start saying things like this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my, flesh and my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And so we can start putting all of this together. When we start putting all of this together. Psalm 87 verse 2 doesn't sound so strange anymore. It makes perfect sense why the Lord would love the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The temple in Jerusalem is where God chose to dwell among his people. There's his presence. Zion is the place where he commanded his people to go and worship him. The courts of the temple are where the spiritually alive long to go, stay, and live because God is there. And so there's the theme. And so we can take a step back and we can ask the question, well, I hear that theme, but how do we do that? How do we do that? What we've read and what we've worked through should deeply resonate with us. We heard these songs. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I don't know about you, but when I read those psalms, I want that experience. I want to know the near presence of God. I want to glorify him like these psalms do. How do we do that? How do we do that? And this is where we have to think hard. We have to think really hard. Making a journey to Jerusalem just isn't feasible for us. Even more, it would be rather pointless to make a journey to Jerusalem because our God no longer dwells in Jerusalem anymore. You can go to the Temple Mount as it stands today, but you won't find God as the psalmist did. You won't see his power or his glory. Your heart's desires won't be satisfied. They won't be filled up. And so we ask, well, where are the gates of Zion? Where is the house of the Lord? Where is that sacred and holy place where God dwells and all of his people are satisfied? Where can we go to see God's power and glory revealed in salvation? Well, here's the answer. Whenever and wherever the church gathers together corporately to worship God, to receive his word, to sing his praises, we find the gates of Zion, the very dwelling place of God. 
whenever and wherever the church gathers together corporately to worship God, we find Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And this fact has to be stressed, brothers and sisters. You are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. God does not dwell in houses or buildings. He dwells in his people, his people corporate. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He's reminding the Corinthian church of what has come to them because of the gospel and the new covenant. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Brothers and sisters, that is the glory of the new covenant. That is the glory of the new covenant. What the people of old, so think of the saints of the Old Testament, what they hungered, what they thirsted for, what they sought after, what they strained after, what they said, oh, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We have right here, right now in this assembly, In fact, we can up the ante because what we have right here, right now is far greater than what the saints of old experienced. What we have is greater than what Moses had. Moses entered into the tabernacle and met God face to face. What we have is greater because we're in the new covenant and the veil has been stripped away. What we have is greater than what Aaron had. He went into the holy place once a year to make sacrifice for sins, but our high priest has entered in for all time and he has brought us with him. What we have is greater than what Solomon had. He built a temple, a wonder of the world. But we don't have to go anywhere to find a temple. We just have to dwell with God's people. So here in this assembly, Christ, our great and glorious King, has come and he has set up his throne. Here in this moment, Christ's presence is to be known. Here in this place, Christ's gifts are to be received. Here is Zion. And this is why we must insist that corporate worship is the most essential component of our discipleship in Jesus. And so there's our proposition proved from the scriptures. We read the Psalms. Zion, Zion, Zion. We read the New Testament. You are God's temple. And so how do we apply this proposition to ourselves? Corporate worship is the most essential component of our discipleship in Jesus. How do we apply this? Well, we're going to get some help by turning to church history. And so in the 1680s, a man by the name of David Clarkson preached from Psalm 87, verse 2. And the, the title of his sermon was Public Worship Preferred Before Private. Public Worship Preferred Before Private. And, and throughout the sermon, he makes this basic point. Corporate worship is the most important event in the life of a believer. And in reality, Clarkson's sermon has fueled much of what you've already heard in this sermon I read it when I was about 22 years old and it had a profound influence on me. It's a a shaping sermon and if you're interested in it, you can just Google it. David Clarkson, public worship to be preferred before private. In Clarkson's sermon, he's a Puritan. It's about 25 pages, single spaced. I guess it would probably take an hour and a half perhaps to preach it. And so what I did in the first half of the sermon is just 
summarize it. But here as we end, I want to follow closely what Clarkson does. And he ends his, his sermon by making two applications to his, his people. And so I'm going to borrow them and I'm going to reuse them. And so Clarkson's first application is this. He reproves his people. He reproves his people. And so you're going to have to excuse some of the language of Clarkson. He lived a long time ago. And I'll try to translate what he says to you. But what he says is valuable. He says, How heinously do they sin who prefer things that are base and sinful before public ordinances. Those who prefer their ease, their worldly employments, their lusts, their recreations before them. We can just translate in that in simple English. What, what Clarkson is saying is to, to keep yourself from corporate worship for, for no good reason, without good cause. So, so to keep yourself from corporate worship without good cause is a great sin. That's what Clarkson is saying. Now it has to be said what Clarkson is saying to us isn't really anything extraordinary. If you read church history from the days of the apostles until now, that's a very basic fact of Christian discipleship. If you were a Christian in the early church, you would have believed that. If you were a Christian in the time of the Reformation, you would have believed that down to your toenails. But what I want to do here is show you why Clarkson is helpful. And this is where we tend to go wrong. So the demand of corporate worship, corporate worship attendance can be put in a very legalistic way. You need to check the box every week and then you're good to go. But what's so interesting in this sermon as he concludes, as he's rebuking and reproving his people, is he doesn't connect corporate worship attendance to the matter of performance or checklists or attendance records. Rather, he ties corporate worship to the worth and glory of God. Listen to Clarkson. This is so helpful, and it should change the way you think about corporate worship. Clarkson preaches, he says, The Lord is a jealous God, jealous over his worship. If you despise that worship, you are in danger. His jealousy will burn like fire against you. Now, don't you despise it when you prefer your ease, your worldly affairs, your lusts, your idleness, your recreations before it? What is this? This is to profane the holy and glorious name of God. And that's such an important connection to make. We can work away at this for a bit. When we absent ourselves from corporate worship, what we ultimately do is we say this to ourselves. And not only to ourselves, but our fellow believers, to the watching world, and ultimately to God himself. When we absent ourselves from corporate worship, we, we say, God, you're... God, our time, our energy, our Sunday mornings, we won't give to you. We won't give to you. Because you're not worth our time. Because you're not worth our energy. You're not worth our Sunday mornings. When we absent ourselves from corporate worship, what we say is that the gates of Zion are, are rather shabby and we rather set our hearts on, on something else. And this is what we have to understand. What, what ultimately brings us to corporate worship or keeps us away from corporate worship is what? It's our view of God. What attracts us to corporate worship or causes us to, to leave or set aside corporate worship is our view of God. And so I ask you, is your view of God big? Is your view of God glorious and wonderful? Because that's going to change everything about corporate worship. If your view of God is big and wonderful and, and glorious, nothing is going to keep you away from the public worship of God. 
because everything else in your life is going to look pale next to it. Because you know, this is where God is going to dwell. And this is where God is going to meet you with his gifts. And so your heart is going to run in that direction. Or is your view of God small, boring, inconsequential? And I tell you, that will make all the difference. Because if your view of God is small and inconsequential, everything will keep you from corporate worship. Absolutely everything. Everything else will seem bright and good and beautiful. Everything will. And your heart will be drawn away and you will have no desire. And if you do to come to corporate worship, it will just be a task to get done and nothing else. And so we stand in need of that rebuke, don't we? We stand in need of it because that's where the scriptures confront us. And so the question is, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And, and Clarkson, after reproving, moves to exhortation. And exhortation is about getting people to do something. So the question is, well, how should we respond to this proposition that corporate worship is the most essential component of our discipleship in Jesus? Well, one exhortation is this, and it's so simple. You should come to corporate worship. You should come to corporate worship. It should be the one event that is penciled in on your calendar. It should be the one event that all the other events in your life fit in around. You never fit in corporate worship. You fit in everything else. Work and play and recreation. Friends. But if we are listening to Clarkson... And following along with his logic, we need to do more than this, that. To have a revival of corporate worship here, we do not just need to get out our calendars and start penciling in corporate worship. That's a good start. But the work goes deeper. It goes to the heart. And this is the secret to getting the most out of corporate worship. Listen to Clarkson as he speaks to his people. He says this, Get high thoughts of God. If you see God as great and holy and fearful and glorious, it will help you to such thoughts of worship as becomes his great and holy, fearful name. That's where the battle is won or lost for corporate worship, in the heart. In the heart. Get high thoughts of God. Clarkson pleads with his people, and I plead with you, get high thoughts of God. The most important thing we can do is to see God as big and grand and holy and beautiful. Because that changes everything about our lives. And Clarkson goes on. He keeps exhorting. And he calls his people to get a true understanding of corporate worship. And he says that we must lay those truths to our hearts. He says, Get due apprehensions of the preeminence of public worship. Think upon this. Here is the sweetest enjoyment of God, the clearest discoveries of His glory, the powerful workings of the Spirit, the precious blood of Christ and its force and efficacy, the exceeding great and precious promises in their sweetest influences, spiritual life and strength, soul comforts and refreshments, the conversion of sinners, the edification of the body of Christ, the salvation of souls. These are the glorious things that are spoken of public worship. Get a high esteem of these and public worship will be highly valued. That's heart work. 
That's heart work, taking the truths of God and applying them to the soul. And so, brothers and sisters, I exhort you today to do this heart work. Get high thoughts of God. Get due apprehensions of the preeminence of public worship. And so I exhort you, strive with God in prayer until he gives you a heart that prizes him and his worship above all else. This is where the battle is won and lost. Say to the Lord this day, I want, I need the the heart of Psalm 84. Teach me to sing and pray like this. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My, My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. To be quite honest, our hearts wander. They do wander. Do not only pray to God, but use his word. And his word does something. Use his word to demolish your low thoughts of God. Sometimes the most important thing we can do is just get out of the way and let the word of God work. And so when the worship of God seems small and unimportant and unattractive, when everything else seems great, when everything else seems highly attractive and your soul is is longing for them, Go to the great texts of Scripture. And we worked through so many of them today. Go to the great texts of Scripture and let God himself argue with your soul. And bank upon this. When God argues with your soul from these great texts of Scripture, he will win. It is God's delight to give you high thoughts of him. Because that is what he loves. And brothers and sisters, when you're weary and you're tired when you're down and you're depressed and worship seems like just another item on the list, pick up the many precious promises of God and let them remind you of the good character of our God because when you come to worship, you come to the God of the gospel. When we gather together, we come to meet the God who gave his son for our sins. We come to meet the God of the new covenant who has poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we might know his love and return love to him. Come knowing that this God has his heart set set upon this to pour out every treasure in Christ Jesus upon your heads that you might bask in all the glory of Jesus forever. So brothers and sisters, receive this proposition as the truth of God. Corporate worship is the most essential component of our discipleship in Jesus and may you live out of that truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give thanks to you. And we ask, would you give us high thoughts of you? More than anything else, we need to see you for who you are. Would true knowledge change us? And we would live out of that truth. Oh, God, we pray in Jesus' name.